Because, you know, every now and again, like, I carve out a bit of afternoon, like, away from marking and mm. lesson planning and everything else that goes with, you know, being a somewhat precarious early career academic. And I'm like, what should I do? You know what? I could watch Chelan or... <laughs> I could go for a walk. <laughs> I agree. So I agree. But then that's why we're doing it. This, you know, we're course. trying to bring people along with us. We're trying to be rigorous and 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 it's a great and it's a great example, I think, of the, of a film that you know it's a first time viewing for me. Um, and I think it's a great example of a film that I might not have got round to in a hurry had I not. Be given yes. the incentive by us. To, and, and actually, I do think there was a degree of that in us putting these lists together. Um, and certainly there was like, oh, that would be a good opportunity to... Because Chelan is a filmmaker who who's dealt with lengthier film. Mm, nah, these were, this one and Wild Pear Tree are the ones that shifted over from the sort of the two, two and a half into the sort of the, the, the podcast long film territory. Yeah, he, he's had a, a career kind of growing. You know, yeah. they went from sort of ninety hundred and then up to Anatolia is uh, two two forty or something like that. And I was thinking about this this morning, sort of when I was sort of preparing, like uh, readying my thoughts on um, on when to sleep, which, by the way, is uh, is what we're going to be looking at today. Um, and I was racking my brains because I remember Anatolia making a profound, uh, having a profound impact on me. But I can't remember tremendous amount of details about about what happened. Well, but it has this kind of sorry. Go on. Uh, no, I was just going to say I was going I was going to do the uh, you know do the link. I was going to be like, well, Eddie, maybe I can jog your memory um, as we discuss the cinema of Chelan over the next however long. Um, and and then I was going to do the hello, listeners, welcome back to So Long Suckers, the podcast all about very long films. As ever, my name is Callum Baker, and with me is Eddie Farvey. Wasn't that fucking smooth? <laughs> fucking smooth. There you go. I think, Thank you. I think, I think, so I'm doing this this time. I mean, obviously no one can see this apart from you, um, but I'm doing this from the kitchen now, and I feel like I've got this air of confidence that comes by having Guinness within reach. That's <laughs> <So after laughs> recording. <Dead> straight. <laughs> The, that's the what last, this is for honestly the last one that we recorded I was on my back bed with like my iPad balanced <laughs> on my foot and like notes on my elbow and this time I'm feeling smooth I'm feeling collected you smooth you're looking smooth like a nice pint of Guinness we do not endorse Guinness I was going to say uh, <laughs> I was going to say drink sensibly <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um Yes, uh, if you want to know what the project's all about, maybe you're just kind of tuning in randomly for the first ever time because you're really into Nuri Bilga Chelan, um, then you can find our blog, solongsuckers.substack.com, and you can go all the way back to the introductory episode and find out, like, what we're doing here, why we're interested in long films, what we want to explore with them. Um, today we are talking about... Okay, <laughs> drum roll, please. I haven't practiced this one. Uh, Kush Oikuzu... Nice. Anyway, that's the Turkish name, but we're going to refer to it as Winter Sleep. This is written and directed by Nuri Bulga Ceylan, and it was released in 2014. In total, this ruminative, uh, disputational, or wordy drama is 196 minutes long, or 3 hours and 16 minutes. As with all of our episodes, we will start by asking why this film dares to be so fucking long, and we were going to, walk to uh, work towards answering, was it fucking worth it? Yeah. Um, so first, some context for all of this. Um, 
All art obviously is informed by the life and the perspective and the experiences of its creators, but Neri Belgacelan kind of takes this quite often to very striking lengths. Um, and in fact, of all of the filmmakers we've looked at so far on this podcast, um, he's often compared to Tarkovsky, who's a filmmaker he really admires, along with uh, uh, Bresson and Bergman and sort of similar people. Um, but when you actually really delve into what he's doing with his films and how he makes them, he's actually much closer to Chantal Ackerman um, in a way that is quite oblique in Winter Sleep, relatively speaking. But once you kind of understand that about him, uh, I think really enriches the text. Uh, so Ceylan was born in Istanbul, but he was brought up from the age of two in Yunisia, a small rural town in the northwestern Turkish province of Shanakale. From the beginning, uh, we should note how much of his practice is informed by a certain specific relationship between different spaces and also between different types of space within Turkey. The rural versus the urban, obviously, but within these there are also kind of different types of urbanity and different types of rurality, and not to mention the way these spaces are affected by different times of the day and the year, like winter. Um, Ceylan's work is also often defined by the spectre of other countries and the idea of travel. More on that in about a minute. Ceylan's focus on place, space, distance, alienation, um, all great themes, um, surely comes in some part from his fairly storied life before he got into filmmaking. Um, there's obviously the basic backdrop of Turkey during his formative years. He was born in 1959, which is the waning years of uh, Adnan Manderes' prime ministership, which kind of devolved into authoritarianism as the economy collapsed. Bear in mind, this is only, uh, I mean, this is less than 40 years after the, you know, the, the country of Turkey had formally been uh, sort of established. Um, Ceylan's childhood and adolescence through the uh, sort of 60s and 70s sees exactly three coups, plenty of civil unrest around the major urban centres, and there's, of course, the country's invasion of Cyprus. So it's a pretty kind of mental moment to be growing up in this particular country. Um, the family had moved back to Istanbul in 1970. Um, they had quite a uh, you know, comfortable middle-class sort of upbringing, relatively speaking. Um, his dad was uh, an engineer. Um, in fact, the reason the family had moved back to the provinces in the first place was because his dad had the opportunity to say, I would like to go and work there, um, which is actually where he was born, um, the dad, if that makes sense. Um, so they're in Istanbul throughout the 1970s, so the uh, young adolescent Yuri would have been pretty exposed to a lot of the kind of general unrest and all of that context. By the time he enters university to study chemical engineering and then switches to electrical engineering, which is a detail I find so funny for some reason, um, Turkey is in the midst of various pretty severe state, uh, uh, states of emergency and martial law. Um, and he's uh, said that, you know, a lot of his kind of lectures and seminars and, you know, just general research time and life uh, was broken up with uh, demonstrations and cancellations and, and, you know, things like that. Um, he ends up graduating university in the mid-1980s and he simply leaves the fucking country. I don't mean to imply that he does this as a political act of protest. Um, it's actually quite interesting that whenever he talks about this leaving the country, this flight, it's kind of... Uh, he talks about it just being in terms of like a general gap year. Like he's in his mid to late twenties. Um, you know, he doesn't know what to do with his life. He's a bit, you know, uh, flighty and wanderlusty. So he decides to have a, a you know, a, a romp around the world, but it is kind of of interest, um, again, to that kind of place, space, distance thing that defines all of his work, um, including winter sleep. Basically he goes to America. He lives in London. He lives in Kathmandu and he kind of tries to figure out what he wants to do with his life. 
He's always been an enthusiastic amateur photographer, and he does a lot of kind of reading and film viewing uh, in the West, which ends up proving very influential on his filmmaking uh, later in life. It's not long before he decides, right, I, you know, I've done this. I'm going to return to Turkey. I'm going to do my uh, my military service and, um, you know, figure out from there what I'm going to do. He does that for 18 months. By the time he's finished in the military, he's like, right, filmmaking. That's what I'm going to do. That's my purpose. At this point, he's already in his 30s. He enlists in a university filmmaking course. He's the oldest student there. He drops out after two years. And then with the skills that he's picked up and tiny bits of money that he gets here uh, here and there by doing like wedding photography and things like that uh, he completes a debut short film which is called Cocoon this becomes the first ever Turkish entry in Cannes uh, the Cannes Festival's short film competition which obviously gives Ceylon you know a fair amount of clout and then the meagre funding that he needs to complete a feature for the first time this is uh, Kasaba or The Small Town which is a lovely black and white film that he shoots in and around Yunitia include like using his parents as cast members which is really lovely um remember this is where he lived as a child and where his father was born um so you kind of uh from the very first feature film you start to see a lot of that kind of uh autobiographical stuff like the material bleeding into his filmmaking um i'm not going to run into all of the semi-autobiographical elements over his first handful of movies but there are fucking tons and they're very interesting um but we all know, in terms of discussing winter sleep, we can note down two things. Firstly, there is um, there is that autobiographical streak, but it's a very kind of like um, fascinatingly self-critical, almost self-lacerating one. He kind of um, he, he never does like a one-to-one author's avatar in his movies or anything like that, but he does kind of use these figures of like uh, male artists, um, often quite listless and useless and and touchy, um, to kind of um, he uses these to kind of critique, I suppose, well, all of the things that he wants to critique, more more on which later. Um, secondly, he very quickly becomes one of these kind of huge models of, like, the modern European art house filmmaker. So when we get to his third feature in 2002, um, I think, is Uzak, or in English, Distant. Um, it wins two prizes at Cannes, and then all of his subsequent films premiere there as well. And... M- all of them win a prize, leading up to Winter Sleep, which walks off with the Palm Door. Finally, <laughs> um, more interesting is uh, than the awards is the fact of his kind of funding models and what this actually reflects within his cinema, as well as kind of European uh, filmmaking at large. Ceylon is obviously a filmmaker who benefits from his country's membership of the Council of Europe and therefore from their central cinema fund, Iramage. And this is just one part of the funding that goes into a Ceylon film. So Winter Sleep is a co-production between Turkey, France and Germany, plus nearly half a million euros from the central Iramage fund. Um, and um, I, you can tell I've been reading work by Thomas Elsesser about this. Um, this is typical of much of the continent's kind of contemporary cinema output. Um, and relevant to today's episode about Winter Sleep is just one specific idea that national, so-called national filmmaking in Europe has become a lot more pan-European and a lot more, like, with a capital G, globalist. Um, and there's no more perfect reflection of this than Ceylon, not just because he benefits from it, but because it's actually kind of, it reflects something that goes on within the stories that he's telling. Um, he is a filmmaker of Turkey, but he con- uh, consciously kind of tries not to discuss the country and its politics on film. Um he kind of works instead within broader traditions of Western thought and dramatic art, um, 
And, you know, again, there's that whole kind of cinema of Chelan thing. Like, his inner life is, in many ways, his biggest inspiration. And that's probably what gives his films their specific potency. So, in short, he's a filmmaker of Turkey, but he's not really a filmmaker of Turkey, um, kind of all at once. Um, and that, uh, I guess, kind of feeds into the specific sort of rootlessness and alienation that the characters feel. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> Some final notes for the context. We can't do a Chelan context rundown without using the phrase slow cinema. Uh, his third film, Uzak, was commonly cited when interest in so-called slow cinema started to really build in the sort of mid-2000s. And it's probably still the film he's made that cleft, like clefts most to that sort of mode. Um, but at the very least, it's worth noting that all of his films are, are quite slow in pace. Um, they're very gradual, they're very careful, and they've got a very contemplative sort of mood. Um, at the same time, we both contend that Winter Sleep is not slow cinema itself, but it has grown out of slow cinema. I was going to say, do you want to pause for a moment and just explain a little bit more why Winter Sleep doesn't qualify in a way that sort of maybe some of the other films we've looked at do? I guess we can probably summarise that fairly briefly. I suppose... In a nutshell, stuff is constantly happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, um, quite simply, I mean, you know, slow cinema for those who um, who really respond to it, you know, even when the camera is just focusing on some unending shot where it's just a fucking leaf blowing in the wind and somebody thinking about something, that counts as something. But I mean, for many people, that would count as nothing. Yeah. And winter sleep... Winter Sleep doesn't do any of that. Winter Sleep is a constantly talky, debate-ridden, quite stressful uh, sort of watch. Um, I don't think there's a single moment of real downtime after sort of the opening ten minutes. Yeah, I think I think I think that's that's a pretty fair explanation. I th- minimalism is something that's often kind of associated with slow cinema, where, yeah. where it's kind of like sequences are like evacuated of drama and i don't think that's the case at all in winter sleep in fact i think almost the opposite like Mm. the the action of the film is kind of understated in that mostly the action if you will and i've I've, you know done air quotes there um (laughs) kind of takes the form of these really intense debates and discussions between lead characters but slow cinema would wouldn't well, if they gave it, like, that wouldn't be all that they give. Like, I mean, Ackerman probably mm. qualifies much more clearly out of the films we've looked at so far as slow cinema. And I think certainly, like, there's aspects of slowness in Tarkovsky, although I don't know if Rublev is the best one for qualifying that. Um, no. yeah. But, yeah, it's kind of... that The, the observational quality of slow cinema... Um, the use of long takes and, and like by long takes, I'm not talking about, you know, slightly protracted takes. I'm, I'm talking <laughs> about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Um, whereas there's actually quite dynamic style happening in winter sleep. Like even when these conversations are taking place within a couple of feet, the, the camera is quite clearly moving in a way yeah. that kind of either completes the alignment with a particular character or, or obstructs it so that we see a reaction rather than the delivery. And it, like, it, it seems to be sort of guiding us in a way that slow cinema wouldn't cut. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I would contend that, or, or um, uh, sorry, assume that this probably has the highest cuts per minute of any Chalon film, um, probably by some way. Mm. Um, it does have these real moments of kind of conversational dynamism, um, certainly. So, the, you know, it, it would seem superficially to be some kind of slow or long cinema type thing that the middle of this film is a simple 18 minute argument mm. between two. Like, think about that. 18 minutes and it's just two characters in a room arguing they're both sat down they never even stand up but at the same time he's constantly cutting between um a few different sort of key angle setups Mm. um which brings i mean as much as the drama of the words and the acting itself is dramatic it also brings another kind of um, dynamism into it Um, but it has this it also does have this staginess to it um yeah like you know i suppose i suppose kind of for, for a film that's invested with like you know discussions about acting and performance and masks and you know you know these sort of themes which do come up and we'll return to in a second when we sort of recap the plot briefly um the sort of the staginess of these sequence also kind of contradicts like you know and i think this is this is something that maybe did come up in our conversation of dealman um and maybe one of the other films like i i, I don't even know exactly what it said but like slowness isn't necessarily a measure of pace but rather kind of like a philosophical approach to form yes um and that is the key distinction between winter sleep and dealman is probably the best uh example that we've looked yeah. at so far well, the word you used um, uh, earlier was observational, and I think that is probably the key distinction between what we're talking about with slow cinema and what we're talking about with this, which is merely long. Um, mm. And that is that slow cinema is an investigation of the visual. Um, well, I mean, the audio-visual, but the kind of primarily the, the sensory aspects of that rather than the talky, dialogic, dramatic aspects of that. And then versus with this which as you say is uh, is so very theatrical there it, i mean it's it's something um i think chalan proves if you're good enough you can only do winter sleep <laughs> on film um but it is as you say theatrical rather than necessarily investigating uh, it, you know in that kind of academic sense mm. that slow cinema inherently has um the way the image encodes time like this mm. this isn't a film this i mean this is a film very much about time but it's not a film that studies time in that really sort of academic uh slow yeah, sense. Yeah. he seems to be cashing in on his acclaim by this point in his career yeah. there seems to be a marked difference between the sort of the generic trappings of some of his earlier films and anatolia is probably the best example mm. of that which and and this one which feels like although there's although there are generic elements it feels much more that the, this is kind of like a kind of an exercise in thought yeah. rather than Ooh, yeah. something that is kind of <laughs> rooted in in uh, like rooted in kind of classical conventional cinematic iconography and with that i mean genre mm. um so yeah yeah fascinating one to get it's into very fascinating um in the, in terms of that i'm going to uh, uh, it actually leads us into the final bit of context here um so very wordy very not slow cinema this is his fourth and to date final screenwriting collaboration with his wife, <laughs> Ebru Chelan. Um, apparently the process behind adapting Chekhov, uh, I don't know if I said that before, this is kind of, this is adapted specifically from a Chekhov story with a bunch of elements from other Chekhov stories thrown into it. Um, 
Apparently the process behind doing that kind of became so strained that they decided to stop working together after this, uh, which is quite funny, Um, especially when you consider it in terms of what's actually happening in the movie. So with Eddie to talk to you uh, uh, about what's happening in the movie. um, Cam, can you pinpoint for me the precise Chekhov references throughout this film? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, no, it is... um, I do know that the story that initially inspired it, um, and this was about 15 years before he actually made it, when he was still like within his really earlier stages as a filmmaker, uh, is a short story called The Wife, which basically deals with that raw material of a husband and a wife still uh, living under the same roof, but they're totally estranged. Mm. And from there, I don't know what the other stories are that he's taken from because you and I do not know Chekhov. Yeah. But I think he's taken some of the charity stuff, I think comes from a different story. I think maybe the sister stuff comes from a different one. Um, Chaylan kind of describes his writing process as, you know, he's read a lot of stuff in his life and it just comes together in a blender. Yeah. Um, Do we lose face for saying that we're not Chekhov experts? I hope not. I mean, no. (laughs) if, If you placed a narratively important gun to my head, I'd still be able to give you nothing. Boom. And that is actually no, no, but, that is actually the extent of my Chekhov knowledge. <laughs> yeah, in the build up in the build up to uh, watching this film, I looked up I looked up online. So one of the other points of reference for it is Dostoevsky. Um and the um the brothers Karamazov um is the kind of the the, the, the one that's uh, attributed um, as a, as a source of influence, and I was like, you know, I'm going to watch this on sun, Sunday afternoon. So okay, we've got Chekhov, we've got Dostoevsky, Sartre, Nietzsche, bits of Shakespeare, old joy, <laughs> <laughs> which actually I think betrays the playfulness of some of this film. So before we get to any of that, though, we need to tell you a little bit more. Uh, at the moment, it's you know, it's a Callum and I, unless you've seen this film before, and actually it would be a good good opportunity to uh, pause this podcast for 196 minutes if you haven't seen this before, uh, because obviously... The the usual warning we give. What follows is spoilers. Um, So, (laughs) Winter Sleep parcels out its backstory as and when it feels like across a lengthy runtime. Rather than meticulously match that, we'll just give you the basics. Iden is a 50 or 60-something actor, um, former actor, who now resides in a rural hotel in the Anatolian region of Cappadocia. Um, The hotel previously belonged to his father, and his father also owned a lot of properties in the local area. So he was a former actor, and now he's basically become a landlord. Um, The responsibilities of these have all been inherited by Iden and his sister, Nekla, who now lives with him. Nekla has spent much of her adulthood living in Istanbul and has only recently returned to Cappadocia following um, a divorce um, from her abusive husband. She hates it. She's bored. She frequently needles her brother, giving him shit whenever he writes anything in the local paper. Um, It doesn't help that the film is set during the winter months, which are off-season for the tourists. So basically... They're also bored. Um, the, the hotel is almost entirely empty. We just see a couple of people coming in, and they seem to be being polite to him. I, I think I don't think anyone's particularly pleased with what um, what he has to offer. Um, no. Which is kind of like the the state of being for most of the people in his life. Not pleased with what he has to offer. <laughs> um, 
During the, um, at this point, we also learn that Aiden has a much younger wife, Nihao, um, from whom he's basically estranged. Uh, she lives in, a, uh, in the hotel, but in a separate bedroom. They only rarely interact. And when they do, it's very strained. Nihao spends her time organizing charity fundraising for local schools. Aiden, incidentally, keeps standing outside her window, just behind a wall and watching her. <laughs> like a dirty old man. Um, <laughs> I, I contend that this is just a black comedy. Like, all of those shots of him are... are yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, at the outset of the film... So this is kind of context before the film even begins. At the outset of the film, um, Aydin has been having trouble with one of his tenants. The home in question is inhabited by the local Imam Hamdi, who, with his brother Ishmael, has re- who has recently been released from prison, um, have been struggling to pay the rent. Aydin tries to distance himself from any sense of responsibility. It was his father's place. He didn't even want to be a landlord. It's all been done automatically by the lawyers. He doesn't have any say in this, etc., etc. It's really interesting, this bit, actually, because he's incredibly um, Mm. restrained in his interaction. He kind of lets... um, What's the name of his um, assistant? Oh, goodness. Um, Oh, God. Uh, Hidayat. Hidayat, yeah. So he yes. basically lets Hidayat do all the work. And at this point, we're still kind of forming an opinion on this guy. And we sort of think that maybe he's observing that this is potentially a problem. Mm. That, you know, that maybe he's thinking, I could be fairer to these tenants. <laughs> Little do we know. <laughs> he's just silently stewing. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, basically he, he absolves himself of all responsibility. That's just the way it is, you know. You owe money. What do you want me to do about it? Nevertheless, uh, Hamdi tries to appeal to Aiden's humanity, but this keeps on backfiring because Aiden is just a total asshole. As we learn, (laughs) slowly but surely, um, (laughs) he's forming opinions on people based on actually nothing at all. Um, He's very high and mighty. He believes himself to be this kind of you know, former great actor who just wants to, you know, enjoy retirement in peace and write his last great work, a history of Turkish theatre. But out here in the Turkish hills, he just seems to be getting older, meaner, more bitter, and it pulls down everyone around him. So, yeah, mentioned already, he's got a side hustle going on. He's writing columns for a pretty unspectacular local newspaper. Um, he, his, to begin with, his sister, uh, Nekla, kind of humours him and sort of co- compliments these stories. Um, but later on, she seems to sort of, you know, express a slightly different view. And I think, as, as Callum mentioned earlier, um, up top, uh, there's this kind of centrepiece to the film, which is this kind of really bitter, resentful argument that happens between both um, Aiden and Nekla, um, and where she basically chastises him for being high and mighty, for, you know, being sort of a man of contradictions. He, like, you know, he doesn't believe in God, but judges people who don't believe in God. Or, or, you well, know. He, well, he's been... His last column was to call out Hamdi, yeah, the yeah. imam, who is just trying to appeal to his humanity. You know, I can't afford the rent. Please don't kick the fucking family out. And uh, and uh, Aydin's thing is like, okay, I'm going to write an opinion column mm. about how this imam is a shabby man <laughs> yeah. who is badly representing God. And she's like, motherfucker, you don't go to church. You don't give a shit about who's representing God. You just want to belittle this, this man of the cloth. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, and like Hamdi is a really interesting figure because I think this might be, and, and I, I, I do not know, I apologise, the, the name of the actor who plays Hamdi, but I actually think it's a really clever performance because he gives you, yes. he gives you just enough that you can see where Aiden might be coming from. Like his smile seems somewhat disingenuous. His kind of, his almost over the top attempts to mediate a reconciliation between these people seems like, I can, you know, you can almost understand why he might be annoyed by that. But Aiden, he's annoyed uh, by him for whatever reason, but he becomes petty. He's like attacking him at a personal level, not not for the reasons that you you could take issue with this man, but he just becomes a bit nasty. And yeah, as as you Mm. say, Nekla basically says, well, I've kind of had, well, she doesn't literally say I've had enough, but she kind of decides to take a stand against um, against her, her brother. Uh, meanwhile, she's been having this uh, this kind of debate with herself, and, and, and lengthy conversations have come out of this discussion about, you know, uh, what does it mean to like, what would does it mean if you were to not resist evil? And one of the sort of the central sort of like arguments the film makes, and this is interesting because the film kind of makes this argument, but the characters don't necessarily because you it sets it up that Aiden will provide an answer right Mm. like and I suppose this maybe feeds into how you're talking about this film as potentially a black comedy in that in that that the film kind of gives us a pretense that it's going to be about something else and in the end it's really not like like this is a 196 minute film which in which we see kind of this character given the opportunity for redemption and Che Lan is like (laughs) no (laughs) um so yeah she she sets up this argument you know what would happen if you don't resist evil that you kind of allow it to happen as a way to prompt guilt reflection and eventually shame in the person committing evil and that will get them to modify their sin that get them to modify their, their behavior so yeah she does after this um argument um like leave like you know this 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 attack on Aiden and what he's doing the fact that he's kind of living rich but looking down on people and you get these kind of these intricate sort of these intricate kind of webs of like kind of privilege contending with self-loathing and you know the whole time the film is kind of setting us up for a revelation something profound and I think actually what is kind of genius about this film is it kind of the revelation should be yours as the viewer rather than the characters. And I suppose that is almost maybe the sort of minimalist style that could be said to like relate somewhat to what slow cinema does in that like it's, it, it kind of is de-dramatized in, in some ways. Like, you know, it's, it's not kind of laced into the, what the film does, but rather what the film asks um i I don't know i found found that kind of um interesting uh watching this especially especially on reflection you know in terms of like well what is the film actually asking us to do so anyway they have this argument and during this argument Aiden uh uh basically upsets his sister enough he makes some suggestions that basically you know she's she's in this bitter position because you know and, 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 you know, without, you know, having left her husband because that's what she deserves because, you know, she's become a bitter person. And that's enough to prompt her to disappear from the film. And we assume, based on the fact that she'd previously been in Istanbul, that she does return to Istanbul, although I don't think that's explicitly mentioned. Anyway, because 
Aiden is very quick to learn from his lessons. He walks out <laughs> of this argument into another one. <laughs> this time, <laughs> this time with Nihao, his wife, who's who's been very much kind of like a side character through a lot of this. Like she's uh, again a, a really interesting performance yes. by the actor. Um, yeah, he 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 fights with her. He basically belittles her. Um, takes uh, tells her that she's incapable of successfully administering the charitable causes that she's basically devoted her own her her her, her entire time here in the um, Anatolian steppes uh, to to for her own guilt that she's got to live such a comfortable privileged life you know she and he basically calls her out on that and says that you know this you're 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 only doing this to to appease this kind of sense of responsibility you know you're living a wealthy life you know basically basically says says that this is kind of performative charity and uh but also crucially he belittles her into believing that she couldn't actually do it like he's 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 basically saying i need to check your numbers and stuff because I don't trust you not to fuck it up so tremendously that we yeah. end up in prison, in prison for tax fraud or something like that. And it's it such, wild. it's such a dickhead answer. And it's like, it's like this, it's this interesting kind of like depiction of abuse in like a very sort of, cause it is like abusive. Um, hmm. Like it's incredibly patronizing. Like if he thinks of her as so infantilized as that, then why is he married to her? You know, because there is like a 30, there must be like a 30 year age gap between them. So anyway, he kind of um, effectively gaslights her into, you know, believing that she has the power to leave if she wants to, knowing full well that she probably won't because, you know, he's in this, you know, like basically she is responsible for her own situation because, of course, you can leave whenever you like. But, you know, not kind of accounting for um, the fact that, you know, people need certain stuff as a final court kind of what he probably believes is a humble gesture at the end of this argument yes he gives her money and quite a sizable money like you know ten thousand lira something something like that yeah it's like it's a it's a watch in an envelope um we've previously had a conversation between hamdi and Aiden about the cost of a broken window um which where you know, Hamdi was like, whoa, 70 lira, that's crazy money. Aydin was like, it's actually 170. And Hamdi looks like his entire world is crushing around him because obviously one of the really important Uh, themes of this film is, you know, different planes of existence depending on where you, the luck of the draw in terms of, you know, privilege and wealth versus poverty and, you know. So, yeah, he gives her this money, which he believes... I, I, you can't help but see it on his face that he believes this is an honourable way to sort of... like. The, you know, he thinks that he's walked away from this 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 argument, you know, redeemed. Um, and she looks at it like he's taken a dump in the middle of the table. Yeah, right. Well, the... Sorry, the, the specific thing with the donation is that he says that it's supposed to be going to the schools. Um Mm. which so you, yeah, yeah. You, you've got a kind of furtherance of that sort of you know fuck you i'm taking the higher ground um thing yeah yeah it's also i've only, i've literally only just realized um of course a mirror of what is going to be the climax of the film um <laughs> yes. when you get to it you know give it giving uh giving her guilt charity money yeah absolutely so um she looks at this money and as much as her cause needs this money 
she cannot, based on her principles, accept it. There's an interesting th- question here about principles because we do return um, to the uh, Hamdi and Ishmael story once again. So at this mm. point, Aydin leaves. He's going off to Istanbul. He's going to write a great work about the history of the Turkish theatre, which, although we never see completed over the course of this film, we know is going to be as terrible as the man who wrote <laughs> it. Um, and I don't doubt that he never completes it. And if he does, it's critically, you know, reviled, because that's this guy. Um, so he leaves. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm going off, you know. Basically, if you're here when I get back, great. If not, then do what you want to do. Here's the money. So Aydin dropped uh, Jets off. Nihal, his wife, who cannot accept this money because she, well, she, she can't believe, basically, that he's given it to her, decides that she is going to resolve another issue, um, which was instigated at the, f- at the beginning of the film um, with the, the run-in that um you know i didn't had with one of the tenants and basically for various reasons um you know they hadn't paid their rent um and i didn't kind of absolves himself of responsibility and says you know it's the lawyers but goods were seized in exchange for value um this kind of embittered both ishmael um who, who hamdi's brother and also his son um, who threw a stone um, at the window of their uh, four by four um, at the beginning of the film and kind of prompted this 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 kind of um, commotion commotion isn't the best word but you know whatever <laughs> um, so anyway uh, Nihal uh, goes and asks a little bit more about the story the situation Ishmael um, went to prison uh, for stabbing someone um, who had stolen his wife's lingerie. Um, Afterwards, um, he sort of lost his job, developed a drinking habit. One thing led to another. Basically, Hamdi is now the sole um, earning person in the the household, and they basically didn't pay their rent. So, not wanting to accept this money from Aydin, she gives the money to Hamdi. Hamdi doesn't quite know how to accept it, but it's at least implied that he might Ishmael returns drunk. Ishmael cannot accept this money. Um, and, uh, you know, for reasons of pride. And it's a really interesting scene that maybe we'll talk a little bit more about later because, you mm. know, he has this moment where he's flick, he's leafing through the money. And he's like, this for a man's pride. This for this. And, and, and you know, and then finally, like, foreshadowed through the entire scene, you know, being lit by a burning fire... He throw he he cannot accept mm. just as she cannot accept the money from Aiden, he cannot accept the money from her, and he throws all of this money, despite needing it desperately, into the fire. Interestingly, his son watches on. Um so while this is happening, Aiden's gone, he's jetted off. God, this is a really long summary, but we're getting there. Um he's jetted off, gets stuck in the snow, basically, <laughs> one thing leads to another, and he doesn't leave. Um, he decides to drop in on a friend who we've seen several times throughout the film. He's like a local farmer. Um, but when he gets there, there's a bit of a catch. He's already going, uh, his friend's already got plans to go hunting with, uh, Levent, who is a local school teacher who has been involved in Nihao's charitable campaigns. And for similarly 
wet reasons as his issue with Hamdi. <laughs> just doesn't trust him. Probably thinks that he's trying it on with his wife or whatever. Like he's just, you know, he's rubbed up the wrong way on him. He's, you know, he's he's looked at his face and he's decided everything he needs to know about the man. Well, it's it's not even that like a, a sort of instinct, um, uh, sort of you know I just get bad vibes off him. Is the fact that when confronted with um, a likely good person or somebody whose job, so in a man, a school teacher, these people like give them a kind of moral high ground that he can't necessarily lay any claim to, mm. um, and then when he discovers that you know they're in need of money, he immediately I don't know in in all of the the the, the reams of um, self-loathing and self-justification in his psychology um, turns them into these, you know, money-grubbing, backstabbing, disingenuous uh, sort of bad guys. He always has to be... The phrase that his sister uses during that big argument is you always have to turn yourself into the oil rising to the top. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's remarkable the way he chooses to treat yeah people that are less well off than him yeah is really the only crime yeah and it, like there's this kind of sense there that this is the natural way things are that he shouldn't have to apologize for his privilege but it mm. but it's also up to him what he does with it you know like the, early on there's a there's a conversation he's having with his assistant whose name i've forgotten once again um which in itself is a commentary about the power dynamics at work in this film. But um, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but yeah, he's having a conversation with his assistant and he says sometimes he just wonders if he should just sell them all off. Or mm. he could just give them up. Like there's there's other there's other ways out, right? If he if he genuinely wanted to be the great person he is, yeah. right off the debt, you have the power to do that and let th- those tenants take the house. Yeah. It's um, so simple. But for him, like he seems critical of systems, yet totally unwilling or unable to see beyond his place within it because it suits him. Yeah. Like, I don't know, there's a really interesting, like, kind of way of reading his role as being symbolic of a variety of different kind of these these figures who are kind of moneyed in more ways than one they have you know like you can see it in terms of kind mm. of like the crisis of the environment and they, these people you know fossil fuel companies and stuff like that and you know like i, I saw a, a tweet like a few months ago or something like that where bp were asking people to measure uh, their carbon footprint and like the, the absurdity <laughs> of that when yeah anyway we don't need to get into that. But, but also, like, kind of in regards to politics and religion, <laughs> basically, Aiden becomes this totem for the, this, in, like, the, not, not necessarily even inherited power, but, like, inherited entitlement that you just, like, by... I mean, well, it is power because he has the money, and, the, and money in this economy is always power... We're, going, we're kind of going into analysis here. We still haven't... I um, still haven't done the, the, the stuff. So, anyway, <laughs> he ends up... At friend's house, Levent, the, the school teacher, is there. He's made an opinion on him because he's doing a good thing and Aiden's never done a good thing in his life. Um, and they end up sort of like just going at each other all evening. Finally, there's something which he almost cannot respond to, which is um, when Levant basically observes that this incredibly wealthy man who believes himself to be a moral man, to be a conscientious man, the word conscience comes up again and again and again through this film. Um, And he didn't help his community following a devastating earthquake six years previously. He took in 
foreign people come over to help and he justifies it being like where are they going to stay um (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, but he didn't he didn't actually reach out to those people around him who needed him and this becomes like a microcosmic kind of reflection on his hypocrisy and and all that um levant goes to bed um not before they throw Shakespeare at each other. Um, just, just you know, because it's one of those sort of films. Um, and Iodine, you know, self-justifying, you know, in his own head, he's not lost this debate. Um, he's ridiculous now. The audience knows that. Um, and he throws up everywhere. And it's like, you know, a great... Again, it's not a slow cinema sort of thing. But, um, like, it's too dramatically charged uh like yeah, this yeah. you know this this fire and brimstone sort of like you know ideologies at like head-to-head type debate which has this kind of shakespearean gravitas anyway and then he like you know throws up down himself um <laughs> so yeah then he returns home and he's learned nothing like literally, we've watched him for over three and a, three and a quarter hours, um, and his revelation. And it, this is this is where I think you know, maybe maybe I sort of come to it, come to understand why, why you're calling this a comedy throughout, because he stands there, serious, watching Nihao through the window, and for the first time in the entire film, we have this monologue voiceover where he talks about how he just couldn't live without her. It's kind of an interesting reflection on the psyche of a man who could be this delusional, right? Because for him, he's he's resolving everything, but it's entirely in his head because his revelation of the importance that, that she holds for him is not shared with her. In fact, what yeah. is shared is the fact that he observes that she doesn't love him but that doesn't matter because he couldn't live without her. So he's basically like, I will imprison you for the rest of your life because it suits me. But he's also, you know, choreographed that in his head as a profound revelation that justifies everything, even as he kind of executes this tremendous burden on the person he supposedly loves so dearly. And that is pretty much where the film ends as he then sits down to write the shittiest history of Turkish theatre to ever be written. <laughs> what are you what are you talking about? It's uh it's gonna be thick and serious, aren't those the words he uses? Yes. Um well he's a thespian. He's not an actor, incredible. he's a thespian, and he never did take the opportunity to do a soap. So he's yeah. a very serious, you know. <laughs> yeah, despite some very attractive offers, no doubt. The most attractive. <laughs> That's what he says anyway. Um uh, you'll, you'll notice, and here's like one initial way into why is this film so fucking long? Like the whole thing about, um, uh, so that whole conversation about not being into, uh, he, he was never in soap operas and uh, he's writing a history of the Turkish theatre. Um, these come in something like uh, maybe an hour and 10 minutes into the film. And these are the first that we've heard of really uh, either of them. And he says mm. this all to, um, uh, so there are two parties um staying in a hotel during the film's first uh, third 
Um, and one of them's this like solo traveler, like this guy um, with whom Aiden strikes up a conversation and he just immediately feels emasculated um, because the guy's younger, fitter, uh, like worldly. Um, he ro- rides a motorcycle and uh, obviously the real kicker is it turns out he's a writer and he's working on a book. Um, and this is where we hear for the first time, oh yeah, I'm writing mm. a book as well. The uh, history of Turkish theatre, uh, it's never been done before. It's, it's going to be thick and serious. Um, so that says a lot about the uh, psychology of our protagonist. But what I want to talk about here, um, mm. uh, our question at this point, why why this film is so fucking long, um, is the structure that Chaylan gives to that parceling out of information, particularly over the first half of the film. And of course, you know, the first half of this film is 90 to 100 minutes long. Um, and, you know, at this point we hear for the first time, oh, I'm a professional actor, you know. Um, I think it's 30 minutes in before we actually have confirmation that he has a wife. Like, the name Nihal has, has come up in the very first scene, like, before the title card, but there is no context for that. So it's 30 minutes in that we find out that he's fucking married. Um, mm. So do you think that choosing to kind of spool out the basic information, like the situation, the backstory, whatever, in this kind of way... Um, obviously it's very interesting and it's very particular but do you think it kind of reflects or undergirds anything within the drama itself the characters like is this grand formal structure with its its digressions um, its kind of discursive style also tied to like character and theme does it mean anything specific for our understanding of Aydin for instance whose journey you know that plot follows Um, and indeed the other main characters if that will make sense Mm. So I think so. And I think it's kind of like the two the two stories that are basically being told, which is, you know, him being a, you know, a shitty landlord, which do I want to say this on the podcast? Being a landlord is a shitty thing. Like, yeah. Um, So he's being a shitty landlord. He has, you know, you own the property. You don't have to collect on it. Like, you know, there is not, you're not going to be, yeah, right. like, <laughs> you're not going to be arrested by someone who's like, oh, you haven't been collecting your payments. Right. Like, that's not, that's not how, that's not how law works because law, you know, protects people with stuff. And like, you know, like, like it, but it doesn't like, pun it. yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, he's a shitty landlord. Um, and he's got this kind of drama that's happening sort of on a, on a wider sort of like, you know, exterior sort of plane of his life. And he's also a shitty husband and brother. And so I suppose what's really interesting about this film is this kind of this competing, there's this competition of spaces, but both of them explain, come to explain who he is and how he got there. You know, you have Mm. this, you you kind of have the interiority of what happens within the hotel, the conversations with uh, Nekla, which later become arguments, his like failure to provide any sense of intimacy to Nihau. Like if 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 it if it wasn't for being told, you 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 could just think that she was someone who happened to also be living there. Like you know they, and the thing is, like he he kind of explains later that she was this great love to him, but we've never seen that. So we so it, mm. you know, and we can't help but maybe think that you know I'm not saying that she was like a gold digger or anything like that. That's not my implication. But we have no reason to believe that there was anything resembling love between these people, that she wasn't just, you know, in a situation where, you know, a wealthy husband from, you know, was, was a, an economic proposition to her, you know, because Mm. this is another thing, right? That people don't get to make choices. You know, we, you, sometimes you have the privilege to make 
kind of to choose between two options and sometimes you have to kind of respond on a principle of need um and again like we we don't we we can't really see what she gets from him beyond a a degree of security which she then comes to resent um so i I do think the kind of that the interior versus exterior kind of planes of action are quite important for sort of also because because he's a very he's also quite an interior character in many ways like it takes it takes to these until we get to these debates to really understand much about him at all as i said when we like when i was Mm. doing the synopsis like when we when we're watching him observe this kind of like playing out of events with the with his uh, with his tenants which is being sort of all like kind of mediated by his assistant um so the young boy has thrown a rock at the, the 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 car um they they go to the house to confront um Ishmael the father um and it, it kind of all escalates that you know the boy's resentful because you took the television because you know you didn't take our word that we would eventually catch up on money's owed so yeah i don't know there's something i mean it, it could even go beyond like like a, the political metaphor of you know this this man sort of like lording over shit um you know to almost being like a religious one as well and i think there's something to be said about that um i think he imagines himself as like this mini god he refers to himself as um, as a king yeah. of the kingdom, doesn't he? Um, but he kind of does it again in that sort of like you know, wet, liberal, not doing anything kind of way, where he's like you know trying to be self deprecating about it. And he's like you know it's a it's a small kingdom, but I am the king, and that's why I like it. Ha 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 ha! It's like you, mm. you fucking parasite. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he's, and yeah. that's and that's another source of his guilt, right? The fact that actually he's yeah. not really done anything himself. Um, like he's he's got the sort of career that it, that privileged entitled people get because the reality is like if you have like raw like kind of talent that people are willing to buy and you don't come from a wealthy background then yes you might get an opportunity in the arts and stuff but really the arts especially like theater and stuff it's it's the demo- domain of the moneyed classes yeah these days yeah. yeah and i don't necessarily know how true that is of turkey um, but I certainly imagine that, you know, relative to, you know, like, you know, Istanbul would be compared to the rest of the country in much the same way that like London would be to the rest of the UK and that it kind of operates in its own kind of sphere with well, its own. Yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> um, like in terms of the sort of spectres of outside spaces that, d- you know, define the spaces that we do see uh, in Ceylon's films, like Istanbul certainly here is um a mythical mm. place um, yeah, we never go and, do we? Uh, no no we certainly don't um uh, but both Aydin and Nekla have like spent some time living there Aydin as well has kind of traveled Europe uh, or so he mm. says um I, I think we get the impression that Nihal was somebody he met in Istanbul and they kind of came back to run the hotel when uh, you know the father um passed away um but that's just like that's that's purely my yeah. impression from the information we do have um you know um uh, yeah, as you say, it is like if it's not the exact case in reality that Turkey has a similar thing to Britain in terms of trying to get into acting, where you um, uh, you, you sort of already you know got to be rich to do it, um, uh, then certainly the truth of the logic of the film is that 
you know, these are Istanbul people and Istanbul has to be understood as a different thing or in opposition to the reality uh, that they're in, which um, uh, obviously defines a lot of psychology and, well, uh, a a lot of the class dynamics as well. Um, So uh, between Aydin and then his assistant, Hidayat, who's then kind of a mediator against the imam and his family, you know, immediately you've you've got three sort of layers of class um, yeah, yeah. going on that are fascinating. Uh, and then this idea that also the imam is supposed to be in something of a different class to the rest of the community um, because of that position within, you know, religious communities, whatever. Um, and then Aydin kind of weaponizes that idea to make him, in his column, to make himself look more like a victim when obviously the imam is this, just an impoverished man who Aydin is actively victimizing. Um, so yeah, it's just really like interesting kind of looping class mm-hmm. relationships throughout. And it all, all of this comes around to Aydin and how he chooses to define things. At every point um, we're asked or f- forced to just listen to him constantly speaking and justifying and excusing and basically defining the world around him do you do you do you agree that like the you know sort of to throw your question back at you then that <laughs> oh, the <laughs> sort of the structure and the spaces of this film and the time we're given in each sort of environment is constructive it's pr- productive to what the film's trying to do um, like or do you think sometimes we're just uh, wasted time <laughs> well um, you know what? I didn't really have an answer in mind. I was throwing it to you because I wanted to see like if there was an answer. And I like what you said, obviously, because uh, you're Dr. Eddie Falvey and uh, you, you say smart and interesting things that I like to hear. Uh, but I did. Um, with, all that, with all that passing out of backstory um, that I asked about, there's something quite displaced about it at times. And there's, there, there's something to the way that we have to kind of collect context from uh, what the characters say. Um, this, mm. is, this is A, um, formally, like, stylistically interesting because it's asking uh, us to mm. listen constantly to a lot of words uh, throughout a very wordy three-hour film. Um, and B, it also does kind of speak to the crisis of identity that defines uh, the, the three lead characters. Uh, you know, the, so the idea that it is all kind of, like, scrambled, it isn't all neatly parceled out in, uh, you know, five minutes of exposition at the be- at the beginning. It's just this miasma of just personal history and, and mess between them all. And there, there is this sense of, like, what are the building blocks that make up these people? And uh, that does come back again to the role of the audience and the work we have to put in, the way that we have to form mm-hmm. our own ideas of what these psychologies and the, the motivations of these uh, characters are. And that's something that Chalon's talked about throughout his career, is that he prefers to respect the audience. He does have an answer. He's yeah. not one of those filmmakers that, like... Mm. Oh yeah, uh, it just came from nowhere, and I don't fucking have. A... He's like, no, yeah, yeah. no, I have meticulous readings on what everybody in my films are doing, but I'm not going to give you that because I want you to bring something to it um, and figure that out. Which is obviously great, great approach. It's like it's, it's like that David Lynch interview where he sort of says something like, "Oh, a Razorhead is my most playful movie," <laughs> and the interviewer is like, "Would you spiritual. like to expand on that?" Yeah, most spiritual movie. Yeah, and it's like, "Would you like to expand on that?" No. <laughs> no, I would just not. Incredible. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I, it does. It does feel incredibly, like, almost kind of over-designed to the point where you, you like, it, you know, it is kind of presenting like a thesis. And it's interesting, like, you know, th- those points you were making earlier about um, Chelan's films being, in some way, if not like directly autobiographical, at least being kind of inflected with this kind of 
self-question. Like, you know, if he is Aiden in this kind of film, it's incredibly self self-lacerate. Like, it shows way too much mm. awareness for him to possibly be entirely Aiden, because Aiden wouldn't write this film. Like... I, like I, because there's what's really interesting from a formal perspective about this film is all of the kind of like the dangling threads that eventually are sort of like revealed to be red herrings in the shape of a mm. white horse. Um, so like you know we're we're, <laughs> we're basically presented with these sort of almost quite tantalising opportunities for sort of symbolic kind of like discovery or something like that. You know he he mm. he has like in, in the kind of like the closest the film gets to an action sequence. There's this like horse wrangling scene. Um, and there's this moment actually that recalls horses, the horsiness of Andre Rublev at points, um, where, ho- mm. where observing the horse kind of has this kind of po- symbolic potency. Here, like, there's this moment where literally the horse is kind of like floundering in the river, like it looks this uncomfortable, it looks distressed, and we turn to, we turn to Aiden and we see him reflecting on something. Little do we know there's nothing profound happening in the mechanisms of his brain. Like, like we see like this horse is basically presented to us as like the symbolic vehicle for his emancipation. And there's a point where he lets the horse go and it's like, but then the logic of the rest of the film, what follows is basically like, why the fuck did he let that horse go? Because he doesn't actually understand what in the context of the sort of the narrative design of this film, which, okay, fictional characters don't know that they inhabit like what the the horse could have represented so it becomes this kind of almost like yeah this 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 unresolved like thread that um the the chelan almost quite playfully gives us you know the horse the horse's you know vessel of you know revelation um yeah. In a way that we've seen lots of filmmakers use, like kind of animals as sort of showing kind of like this, this kind of um, this reconciliation between, you know, the sort of the, the, the human sort of like selfishness and that, and and also these kind of like more innate and with that more virtuous kind of qualities. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's not the, it's not the only thing as well because like the debate that they have about not resisting evil is another. Mm you know offering yeah for profound revelation it's um an- another thing that chelan has said plenty of times about his own practice um is that he truly believes that when people speak to one another that they do not uh, that there's a lot they're holding back at the very least and um he's even talked about conversation in terms of like oh no people are always like literally lying in some sense to themselves and each other and um I, I do want to say he's he's a lot more like dryly funny than all that. He's not like this dark, grim individual. Um, mm. And when you say you'd be surprised if he's sort of writing himself into Aiden, I would suggest that actually he is to a clear extent. But he is also good enough of a filmmaker that he develops on that and he creates a separation, uh, you know, a distance. Uh, he, he can take a step back because Chelan, to varying degrees, is in most of his films in, in the, 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 the protagonists. Um, uh, so, so he talks about how people, at the very least, when they speak, are not necessarily saying the exact truth. So when you have these long dialogues throughout this uh, film, obviously they uh, they express the surface level stuff that you'd expect, the characters' opinions, whatever, um, or at least what the characters want to present their opinions as, which is just good writing as far as I'm concerned. Um, but then here it's also specifically um, and profoundly about what the characters don't say. 
Um, and of course, again, this feeds into the length of mm. the film. We therefore need to hear more of the characters presenting themselves through speech so that we can more completely figure out these uh, psychologies. Uh, but in terms of the specific conversation around that morality thing, so like Neckler's logic that she's toying with um, is that what if you allowed a person who was going to do a bad or evil thing to do that evil thing and then maybe it will allow them to have the opportunity to feel some remorse to thereby become spiritually better or mm. whatever rather than just like going for this re- retributive ju- uh, justice where they might never learn anything uh, I didn't absolutely won't have this um, but Nihal kind of meets Neckla halfway she's like yeah that's an interesting uh, thought experiment um, but the purpose of things like that and I, I do think there's a symbolic purpose as well but at a fundamental, um, you know, screenplay writing level. It's just about getting the characters to speak to one another so that the ideas, like, behind the ideas, the kind of unspoken psychological ones, um, are things that we can then perceive and interpret Mm. ourselves to greater or lesser extents. Yeah. I think it's interesting because Aiden does, like, answer Neckler's proposition but not in the way that like a like a satisfying narrative would have it go because mm. necklace proposition is an interesting one but it's an incredibly risky one because it demands that on this course they find introspection and they have this moment of reflection to correct the wrong because ultimately right Aiden himself is the one committing evil. Like, not great evils, really. Like, you know, he is... He's pig-headed. He's opinionated. He's a hypocrite. You know, he's gaslights his wife. He demands payment. But, you know, all landlords do that. Uh, yeah, he, he, could be, he could be kinder to his wife and, you know, he could be less bitter in his columns and stuff like that. But, you know, he's not creating, committing great evils apart from, like, profiting from, you know, the dowry of this privilege that he's been handed down from, you know, generationally. Um, mm. But he doesn't resist these worse, these impulses of his. Uh, like, and, and the impulse mostly to just continue on without being critical and therefore you know and and it's interesting it's worth maybe mentioning that when necklace talking about it she's she's having this you know this this kind of debate with herself in response to being in an actually abusive relationship like a properly violently abusive relationship yes and so the question that she's asking is even you know is could be potentially like much more life-threatening than say well you know okay i'm not not to say that like you know forcing people into poverty and giving them no opportunities to to get out of it cannot be life-threatening because of course it is um but you know she's basically you know talking about her husband who beat her um saying what you know what if i let him i guess the the gamble is tremendous because it demands that he actually acknowledges what she's done and responds in the way she hopes, which is that he feels shame enough to stop and, you know, course correct. But, you know, we don't know how that's resolved with, with regard to Nekla, but we see the problem of that gamble in Aiden, that he doesn't reflect. He doesn't resolve. Um, he just continues on this sorry path, which sadly because there's only so much to go around is also kind of condemning everyone else, you know, 
ultimately, like, the only way to be moral in the situation he is mm. would be to relinquish the power that he's been given, yeah. which is not to sell the properties, but to hand them over. Um, you know, he could keep his hotel. He can write his fucking book. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, beyond that... <laughs> I don't know. It's an interesting. It's an interesting film because, uh, in this regards, because you know it's, and I, I suppose like, I think I t- talked earlier about it being like stagey. It's also quite novelistic, mm. like, um, and I suppose like the literary kind of interests that uh, Chelan had whilst uh, look, looking at this. I mean, you know, you don't get much more hardcore literary than Chekhov and Dostoevsky and Sartre and Nietzsche and Shakespeare and. Bergman as a point of reference. But as you say, it's so playful uh, with those. I mean, there are elements of um, almost meta-theatricality in it when we were talking about um, mm. um, the, the, the part earlier where he and the school teacher are sort of quoting Richard III at each other as a way of... Uh, yeah, sort yeah, yeah. Of, you know, that like, classic attempt at one-upsmanship using um, literary quotes. And yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know, there's, there's an extent... Um, to to this where because uh, Iden is literally an actor or an ex actor mm. in the story, and um, I wonder if you know one of the elements of play within the construction of the uh, the story, which is a you know by the way I just want to make it very clear um, that this is not a naturalistic film, um, you know at, at the same time that it's a, a fairly slow paced film that is yeah. not a slow film, it is a quite kind of um, uh, oh, I don't know. It, it, it's got the ribbons of what we associate with cinematic naturalism, but it is very heightened. Uh, mm. And um, I wonder if part of that construction is that Iden is the actor that you sometimes get within Shakespeare plays, where you, you do you know what I mean? Like, like in Hamlet or Midsummer Night's Dream, where there's like a play that is put on at some point in the play mm. that kind of comments on uh, sort of the action. And when you have a scene that is so obviously meant to be that kind of like we're summing up the themes of the film uh, as him versus mm. the school teacher um, getting drunk together. Um, I wonder if it is to an extent a kind of joke on the idea of Iden the actor in the play within the play summing up the ideas of the film. And then of course, as you know, as you said earlier, he vomits at the end, which is one of the most outre yeah. moments we've actually seen. Um, in an otherwise totally dialogue-based film so far. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Black comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do find this a creasingly, creasingly funny film. You know, the, the, the conversation fairly early on where um, where Aydin has the imam round uh, mm. to his study um, to kind of discuss the matter at hand sort of thing. And he's just being this passive-aggressive dick. And every line of his, he says something that's like, oh, well, I don't know anything about it. And then he's like, oh, no, well, but, you know, uh, you, you have to pay the money. Oh, but I don't handle any of it. And it's just this this constant kind of flip-flopping, like trying to convince himself, um, failing entirely to convince anybody around him, um, not least this guy that's mm. actually trying to appeal to his common humanity. Um, and you got that bit later on where uh, the, uh, the imam has suggested that his nephew is a form mm. of uh, penance kiss Aydin's hand and Aydin's like no 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 <laughs> I don't like any this is funny enough in itself I don't like anybody kissing my hand nodded my father you know blah 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 but then it just it's I you know I cackled when after a few more lines he's like oh go on then yeah. and just sticks out his hand in the most like regal <laughs> sort of stupid way of course you know 
the the setting of the entire thing is absolutely weaponized at this point as well. You know, um, uh, Chaylan is framing mm. them in that glorious bay window uh, of the hotel, and it's just like you you are seeing Aiden at his most yeah, yeah. monarchical, his most baron like, um, but while constantly, um, ironically, denying the idea that he has that privilege. Um, he thinks he's a man of the people. The paper he writes for is called The Voice of the Step, and it's like, in in what universe is the opinions columnist of The Voice of the Step really giving voice to the local area um, in any way? He is no man of the people, and yet he tries to convince himself that he is anyway. And there's a great there's a great exchange over one of his articles, which he writes, called like The Flowers of the Steps or something like that, where mm. um, well, basically someone writes in in response to be like, oh, you know, you you write beautifully about this particular area, you know, like massaging the ego, which, you know, the, all of these endeavours at this point seem to be, you know, an opportunity to do that. And uh, basically they're, they're looking for money for their cause, which is, you know, a, a fine cause. It's like to build a women's centre or something like that. Hmm. And he is open to the possibility of this. And then uh, Nihao is kind of, you know, colder on it and it's because he's never had he's never thought to support any of her school projects before you know but this one which comes like you know packaged around a compliment that that kind of yeah makes him worthy that shows his goodness um or not necessarily shows but at least kind of professes goodness um is the mm. is you know is the one that kind of piques his interest um but yeah, the, the, the sequence um, with Ham, where Hamdi comes around and stuff, there's really interesting formal stuff uh, going on within the sort of the, the, the style of the film because, you know, we are largely aligned with Aydin. So again, like as I was saying earlier about Ham, the, the sort of the, the significance of that performance by the actor playing Hamdi in that, like, there's, at least, there's just enough that we could possibly see cause for Aydin's perspective um but because we're largely aligned with him like we're you know positioned as viewers from the hotel looking out rather than from the village looking in that it it kind of you know almost seduces us into this kind of like you know he is an affront in this space and like there's this moment where basically like you know women's slippers are brought and given to him and he's got like you know that i mean again it's kind of like it's almost like darkly funny uh, that Hamdi has to sit mm. there in these women's slippers and stuff because he, it's like he's not actually listening to him he's trying to find opportunities to humiliate him um, mm. and yeah he's just you know he's just a right shit <laughs> in all of these <laughs> encounters um, but the, the space of the film I did find really striking and we briefly touched upon this anyway you know like the, the kind of the rurality of it all is is kind of important and mm. like Chelan both uses and also doesn't use the landscape of Anatolia like incredibly effectively like I don't know if did, did you have any thoughts about the, the space of this film and oh it's I mean it's immediately unique it makes for really fundamentally visually striking film and I believe that that was actually the reason that Chelan chose it um, and I should say that Cappadocia was not um, which is this really striking kind of undulating volcanic 
rock region with uh, with with buildings kind of built mm. into the rock and things like that. It's um it's one of these like U- UN you know areas of global natural interest or whatever. Um, it's really beautiful and striking to look at. Um, that wasn't like written into the script that this has to be a Cappadocia set film. This was um it, you know started figuring out most of the drama and the characters and then went for a scout and then was like, oh yeah, shit, this is a really nice place. So it's first and foremost, just like he liked mm. the look of it and thought this will make for a striking film and he's damn it's right in that. But it, it is beautiful, but it does, oh, I don't know how to put this. There's something about the kind of um, ancientness of it simultaneously the kind of run downness of it because it is you know that there's a way in which these kind of ancient areas like this and it's it's decidedly a rural area as well very out of the way um quite desert like and uh, it's famously got these like really cold winters like it's it's a very high altitude so it's got these freezing cold winters and these very warm summers um it's simultaneously both uh purely beautiful but also it looks like a kind of run down town that's been very neglected um and there's uh with with kind of both of those senses going on at the same time it it gives you a very specific read on the uh world in which all of this is happening and that's a world that kind of um as with much of the film again you know chaylan is both a very turkey specific filmmaker and also somebody that's trying to work at a universal uh sort of level um it does kind of provide this perfect backdrop for discussion in general of the banal evil of landlordism and of uh charity not not char- being charitable obviously but the idea of um there is no central funding for the schools and to fix the school roofs and to fix the school uh water in this area in the film instead Nihal feels the need to do private charity uh, to kind of do that and that is obviously mm. not you know that's not a functional system um and that's very much part of what's on Chaylan's mind I think um is that landlord isn't bad a system where mm. private charity is forced upon people also not good um and I yeah I think by having this kind of um mi- like almost mythical looking but also quite generalized kind of uh, uh uh backdrop um physically for all of that I I think it kind of does create this sort of like mythical universal uh sort of sense for all of the allegory to yeah. to emanate from if that makes sense Yeah it's interesting I was just thinking uh I was also just kind of thinking like whilst you're speaking about kind of I don't know if you've mentioned it already or not about like the inherent like mediocrity of Aydin as well being something that's kind of like, you know, conveyed to us carefully and slowly. Like the actor playing him has this kind of certain presence that you can kind of imagine on the stage, but there's kind of, you know, firstly, Nekla makes the accusation that, you know, we expected you to be better. You basically weren't. Um, they also have, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the hovering sort of specter of, um, their father's wealth. Um, but equally, you know, we're talking about wealth in a very regional community, which Mm. clearly seems to be not a very wealthy area. So I suppose something that's really important to his character is like conveying the messages that the film does is the fact that he is actually quite a mediocre man 
who has these kind of delusion delusions of greatness um and you know it's it's an incredibly beautiful like environment but it's clearly like that like to be the wealthiest person in this environment isn't necessarily like a huge marker of kind of tremendous prosperity here um and actually the only thing that differentiates them isn't his independently accrued wealth in the meantime it's the stuff that was already there to begin with that has trickled down from his father. That's the perfect summary of what I was kind of getting at with the the duality of the landscape. Yeah, so yeah. the hotel is beautiful. It's spectacular. As we said, at the very least, I mean, Chelan really wants mm. us to understand how lovely that bay window is looking out over the landscape. Um, and he's also, you know, we do spend a lot of time in um, Iden's study, which is um, kind of in a separate cave. This is, mm. this is how this hotel works. Everybody's off in these different caves. Um, really unique sort of system going on, but we're really made to mm. feel the cosiness of that little study. So there's, there's a real sense of like, oh man, fucking imagine if you were living in this mountain, you would be so happy. You'd be like, this is the coolest place to live in the world. But at the same time, it's really run down um, sort of elsewhere in the area. And I think, yeah, what you're saying is Aydin can be both the biggest man with the coolest house, and yet it's also in the most deprived kind of small place. And I think, yeah, mm. you're, you're right, that the landscape as a whole kind of externalises uh, that mm. facet, that duality of the personality and therefore the satire uh, that's being um, exercised here. And that's not in a way that's supposed to be like, you know, criticising these people who live here, because that's not what I mean. But, you know... It, no, it, yeah, it, they're just with, real people living their lives. Within, yeah. Within, yeah. within a system that depends on economics, you know, like there are... Yeah. This is quite clearly a deprived area. Um, you know, like the, the conversations about money that are had, you know, tremendous sums, you know, like to, to individuals here um, that's, you know, they like there's this opportunity for um, Iden to kind of be decent where like Hamdi clearly comes with some money to give him for the broken window from the beginning of the film. Mm. Um, He says he thinks it's about 70 lira. Hamdi clearly looks uncomfortable and says, Oh, you know, I didn't expect it to be so much. Like, how is it that much? And then he takes, and then he phones his assistant to correct himself yeah. to 170 lira. And it's like, <laughs> if you had any decency, you would be like, it's 70 lira. Like you, like he has the opportunity to not well, disclose that. Yeah, exactly. There are points where he doesn't like, he's so at once obsessed with being like, Oh no, I'm completely benevolent and I'm not going to take this money off you. But then he kind of puts the onus of the conversation on Hamdi, you know, by doing the whole, like, well, if you insist type thing, when he doesn't have to do that. And then he's like, well, I'm going mm. to phone my assistant and find out how much it is. And then he finds out it's 170. And then he doesn't, as you say, he doesn't have to disclose that. But he just can't fucking help mm. himself, which is what it is. Again, it is really funny to me to watch. Obviously, it's depressing. This, you know, this is real mm. shit. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's what's destroying the world, basically. Um, but dramatically, it is beat for beat, just pure comedy. It's very funny to me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that there's this kind of sense through, like, the conversations he's having, through the observation he's made made of people, that he is, like, he has re- returned 
to this environment because he he can't he, he maybe he believes that it's going to give him some sort of like profound late life and maybe he will find religion mm. like he seems to be he seems to be preoccupied with um the work that hamdi's doing and he's he's interested in kind of like the the place of islam in this community um and maybe he feels like this is what he would like achieve here um, but this is also kind of like again evidence of an entitled man who writes but doesn't read. Like that by by the end of the film, like we we're not even actually by the end of the film when he's having the conversation with the motorcyclist who tells him he's writing a book and he's like, oh, I'm also writing a book. He tells us that he's basically done all of the reading, but he just needs to write the thing. Um, <laughs> and actually, we've never seen ev- like okay, so it might have happened in scenes we haven't seen on film, but we've never seen evidence of him actually kind of trying to expand his thinking he has these this kind of you know blind self-belief that he is an intellectual man who is scrutinizing he is you know intelligent um he is you know asking life's big questions at this part you know where he, where, you know in retirement in this beautiful landscape surrounded by you know lots of people you know who believe in you know this kind of you know in 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 like the you know islam and and all that so but we never see him trying to learn we only see him projecting this garbled belief system that he clings to resolutely you know and yeah i think i think that's an interesting thing as well that we only ever see him write and you can kind of like imagine him as a fucking angry person on Facebook with opinions on shit. Um, you know, the Oscars, blah, 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 woke and, you know, all that fucking nonsense you have to contend with online. And you can, you can just imagine what he would write about, like, you know, modern cinema. <laughs> like, if he wasn't talking... Yeah, he, he's he's that guy. Like, you know, I was once reasonably smart, uh, but I haven't built on that. And they're the worst type of people, the, the ones who the ones who have kind of baseline intelligence, but they've not continued reading, they've not continued educating themselves, they've just let that they've just ridden that for thirty years. Not to mention, you know, the whole like inherited wealth uh, and sense of entitlement thing. Um, all of that kind of smallness that you're sort of describing and the the pretentiousness and also the the need to come back to the rural uh you know, area of origin and try and reconnect with the common man, maybe even find religion, is part and parcel of the first four features uh, in Chavon's filmography. He moves off a little bit when he makes Three Monkeys and then Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, but I think this kind of comes back to um, an archetype that he had been exploring a lot in the previous movies of this uh, pretentious, uh, listless... Um, artist who has a particular relationship with rural Turkish culture. And, you know, I, I, I would suppose, I'm not an expert on Turkey, I'm certainly not Turkish, but you get the impression from these films that it's got a similar kind of cultural thing, hang-up, that most countries that we're yeah. familiar with do, which is like, a, oh yeah, you know, the real people of this country, Eddie, they're the poverty-stricken masses uh, out in the sticks. Yeah, yeah. And um, and he does that. He plays with that in all of them, uh, all of the early films. The specific um, kind of opposite of that, I suppose, is the um, the character played by his cousin, 
uh, Mehmet Emin Tobrak, who died uh, not long, well, just before Uzak premiered at Cannes. Uh, he kind of functions in the first three films as this sort of like, um, he's always this rural cousin type who wants to move to the big city. Uh, and he has these big mm-hmm. dreams, but he's kind of stymied by the fact that he doesn't, doesn't got no education. Um, mm. he's, he's, you know, in many ways, he's got no kind of prospects. And there's something really poignant about uh, all three mm. of his performances in those movies. Um, but in Clouds of May and then famously in Uzak, which I think a lot more people have seen, um, it's then contrasted specifically against the Ceylon stand-in played by uh, uh, Muzavir Ustamir, um, playing in one of them a filmmaker and in the other a photographer, who is the big city guy who got out of the sticks and became this uh, uh, big city uh, culturati-type figure, um, who's like, uh, oh yeah, I'll help you. Oh no, but I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Oh no, yeah, you might as well just stay in the villages. Uh, <laughs> which dramatises a real kind of, you know, again, we've used the word self-lacerating in relation to uh, sort of Chalon's mm. stand-ins. But it is, you know, so self-critical of like, God, am I the guy who went and pulled the ladder up under me, uh, from under me? Uh, mm. Sort of thing. And this is a very interesting variant on that because we see a guy who went to the city and he's kind of come back, but because he failed, which mm. is almost the, the, the logical extent of the Uzdemir characters in the previous mm. movies. Um, I think, yeah, I think the kind of the point of like, you know, the point of entry that we have via Aiden here does seem to do something with like the concept of social realism that we don't see in like, you know, I don't know, like a, a loach work or something like that because you know by folk but you know because the, the alternative would be to do it from the perspective of hamdi and ishmael and you know we we see that kind of you know poverty stricken strife um and i think the problem the, the, the problem is with that thesis is it's about them overcoming rather than about the the privileged classes relenting relenting privilege yeah right um and yeah the thesis is kind of very different because you know the salute the, the solution you know if, if we if we're in a situation you know where we're you know everything's stacked against us then we have to overcome it but we still are operating within that system well whereas chelan's perspective here is actually there is power to change the system but unfortunately, it's not with the people who struggle through it. It's with the people who have, you know, always profited from it. You know, private land ownership is going, mm. you know, in, in here. Like, you know, just like being able to inherit properties that you continue to rent. You know, it just seems fundamentally wrong. No, fuck it. Just, they, get, they get redistributed, you know. They shouldn't necessarily yeah. go back to the state because I don't necessarily think that that, that also – you know, well, or, or they could be, or they go back to the state who then sees, okay, this person needs it, or this person's always lived in it, they can now just have it. Yeah, right. In an ideal world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, man, too much, too much for socialist. But, but you know, I, I do think there is this like this socialist spirit in Chelan's films where he's incredibly accusatory of, you know, privileged people, um, whilst also kind of fighting with the fact that he is increasingly becoming privileged himself like what do i yeah. do with this and, and, I, and i suppose this this shows his like sensitivity as a filmmaker as well because if you show it from the perspective entirely of the working class when you are no longer of that class then it becomes poverty tourism rather than hmm. something where it's like no 
I am looking at my responsibility, um, you know, to do X, Y, and Z. And these, this is the responsibility because yeah, like there is something uncomfortable always when people get rich and they still make films about people who aren't rich. Mm. And, you know, I don't know how rich Chenan is. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he's, Rel- you know he's he's relatively fine you know he's a two-time palm door winner you know he's not going to have hollywood money but he, you know he's going to be fine i look forward to when he enters the marvel universe and <laughs> makes the serious bucks with quantum g- orgasm or whatever's coming next to... <laughs> um, hopefully hopefully it's that one <laughs> you're kind of Ouch. right about like the kind of creator that can make this um uh you know it goes back to that sort of idea of like what the international auteur type thing is these days yeah. uh, without being nihilistic about it. The fundamental question is, wait, to what ends, who is watching the film? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as you say, he is obviously a very thoughtful person and mm. that question is almost baked into the film mm. um, to an extent. Because um, it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing, like, right, you know, if, if suddenly, you know, one were to win the lottery tomorrow and, you know, there's different types of lottery, but let's say, you know, suddenly you went from being in a situation where you, you still have to contend with debt, you know, mortgages mm. and rent and, you know, all these sort of things to being in a position where suddenly, like, everything in your life has been paid for. You know, everything in your family, your close, your loved one's lives is paid for. Like, you have that level of security. Then, well, what do you do next? And this is where, like, real philanthropy comes in, right? It's, you know, yeah. it's it's not giving away bits. It's giving away everything. Well, that's, that's actually a line in the film, I think. And I wish I could remember which character is given that line. Mm. But they do observe that uh, real charity is not giving away a chunk of your, you know, huge fortune. It's being in a less privileged position and giving away part of the meagre stuff that you do earn. So we've talked a lot about so far about how this film sort of plays out and how it kind of teases us with the possibility of Iden's kind of like um, transformation into a better person. You know, he buys a horse, you know, horses... <laughs> the horse does nothing. Um, he has these 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 discussions and learns nothing from them. And then finally, you know, like the film ends in this kind of incredibly like both kind of tantalizing but also un- unsatisfying way. Like, mm. how do you do you think he's learned anything? Like, do you like how do you feel about Aiden exiting the film? Is it better or worse than he started? He's uh absolutely no better um what we witness here is not necessarily the betterment or the degradation of a man we simply see demonstrations of his chicken shitness basically um you know we mm. we could witness any week in the life of Aiden uh, on film and it would be pretty much exactly the same in terms of <laughs> like you know our moral pronouncement of him um and mm. which kind of brings us full circle in terms of the, the, the length of the film and all of that is um, it's very fascinating how much content uh, Chalon kind of throws in uh, simply to demonstrate this empty shell of a human being this person who may or may not be mm. an allegory for uh, neoliberal you know capitalist 
land of barrency. Um, this person who may or may not be a stand-in for, you know, the European Union, which um, Turkey is not a member state of, but I know that... Because <laughs> I remember there's an entire dialogue about, like, um, uh, so what do you think about maybe we're joining the EU uh, in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia? I, like, I know it's it's as much as he says that he doesn't address current politics that directly in his films because he likes them to, you know, remain sort of uh, relevant forever sort of thing. Um, th- you know, globe- specific global power structures are on his mind. This isn't just a general thing about the power that humans wield over each other. This is about economic power um, and what's mm. going on there. And for him to throw all of this dialogue in, much of which digressive and discursive and kind of around, um, as we were discussing earlier, abstract ideas like uh, the morality Mm. of allowing an evil person to do uh, evil um, instead of intervening. Um, All of that simply to illustrate various variations, (laughs) God, what a a phrase, various variations, um, of the theme of... (laughs) you know, this person that just sits there with their power and does nothing to change mm. that and does nothing to even begin to change it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's remarkable, really. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's, it's a film which, like, is clearly invested in discussions about guilt and shame mm. and then gives us a character who can feel neither... But there's this, there's this amazing moment in the the, the, the the fight he has with Levant right at the end. And it's before they start sh- quoting Shakespeare, where, like, Levant is starting to imply that he might be disingenuous yeah. in, like, the stuff that he does. And he responds by saying, God made the system. Yes. And this is... Yeah, yeah. And this is a man who has... Take, doesn't believe in God in like in a clear cut way. Like he might have some, you know, inherited spirituality, but it's like, but he is now using kind of the logic of a system he doesn't even subscribe to to win mm. an argument. And like, I think that's what's so interesting about what this film does is that, like, it's quite. I think it's quite pessimistic. In that, like, you know, the, the, this, you know, ultimately one of the problems with any movement towards like a more socialist system that actually kind of provides security um, for everyone is that those people with stuff, with power, with capital, in all guises, um, has to relinquish it. And that's why, you know, the the kind of the utopian shift towards a more socialist system of governance is incredibly like it requires an awful lot because you're basically asking the haves of the world to give up their power. Mm. And, you know, this film is playful, but what it actually has, like at the centre of it, is an incredibly pessimistic kind of reality check that basically tells us that actually we're we're kind of consigned to this for as long as individuals like Aydin, but but significantly, you know, Aydin is like 
And I think this is kind of his mediocrity and him not being exceptional is quite important here. Mm. That people like in the middle or like the the bottom middle or the the upper middle, we're not talking about like tremendously wealthy, successful people here. We're not talking about like the money of like big oil, big tech, big pharma. We're talking about, you know, if even he cannot establish humility, understand his privilege, you know, maybe give some of it up freely, you know, it's not about contributing a few thousand lira. It's about saying to this family that needs it, have the house. Mm. Like that's the moment. Like that's the moment of the sort of the tradition, the classical Hollywood, no, not Hollywood even, but the classical sort of like film logic is that there's a moment where he's like, gives the house. Um, but the thesis of the, uh, and this is the thing where actually like any, any humor that the film has in the kind of the moment to moment kind of interactions is actually really kind of undermined by the reality that it presents, which Mm. is we cannot trust people with tremendous amounts of power, not to lord it over us until everything is on fire because they have systems of logic in their head which legitimize their claims mm. and when they don't they reinvent and when they reinvention doesn't work they literally just make shit up god yep. made the system says the man who doesn't believe in god therefore i'm only you know i'm not to blame yeah and like this is the thing like this is why like this film is it's kind of like sat with me awkwardly because on the one hand like it's a film that kind of is quite low key in like its revelations you know at kind of a macrocosmic level at the at the level of this character it's like oh this character doesn't learn his lesson you know and great on a character basis like on an individualized basis great you know we can observe this he remains a hypocrite he's he's cruel he's undeserving of anyone's love and affection but on a, as a wider commentary, and it's impossible not to sort of like, but just by what Chelan does and his intelligence as a filmmaker and the fact that he's reaching from kind of like literature across Europe and, you know, he's, I think he's kind of invested in his reputation as an auteur. Yeah. That he's making a point about everything. That you cannot trust these individuals to do the right thing but for as long as they retain power things are not going to change i sorry i'm 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 wrestling with myself over whether this seems too hacky of a summary mm. but you know because you're completely right the the sheer wordiness of this film um means that it is not yet another film uh about what the powerful and the wealthy will do to self-preserve it's a film that is wrapped up in all of its words because it's a film about self-justification and how the wealthy, Mm. the powerful, the privileged use self-justification as possibly the first step in their self-preservation. You know, as as you Mm. say, the idea that if you can wrap morality, uh, ethics and even spirituality kind of to your point of view in the argument, then Mm. yeah, you've, you've, you've definitely got somewhere on the step to, continuing with what you've got 
And wordiness in itself is interesting, right? Because if you think about the language of politicians who talk around every single point, like, you know, you ask a question, tell me about this thing that you did that directly impacted in those people over there dying. Well, I'll tell you about what I did a few years ago. And it's like, and it's like, and it's like, you know, this wordiness here actually in itself Mm. being kind of like a tool, tactic, or even weapon, like a rhetorical weapon. And like, you know, We, we observe this all the time, like people who are moderately successful. <laughs> Christ, I mean, <laughs> like, I can't help but think about our former prime minister, someone who is like most mediocre, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> me, mediocre in his field, but has tremendous privilege. But, you know, like, is like, it's almost baffling. It's baffling to kind of, it's baffling to kind of like uh, think about all the ways in which it aligns, right? <laughs> um, it's because, as you say, it's the weaponizing of language. Yeah. Uh, and he never said anything or says anything like, you know, truly articulate in any real sense. Because his way of weaponizing language is rather than... Um, oh, I don't know. R- rather than kind of obf- obfuscating things with um, too much context and too many ideas and too many words and too much self-justification, mm. is to use words as ends in and of themselves because words make one sound smarter yeah uh, which i think is the fundamental truth going on here is is words fundamentally are this i don't know i mean they're they're a weapon and this is and this is exactly what Nekla tells him during that argument she attacks him for his sentimentality being self-interested like and yes and and she says to him and this is and this is kind of the bit where like you know Although I think he believes he wins this debate because he has to, right? Um, like she says that, he, like basically, his writing is an innovative. It doesn't actually do anything. It says things that people can't disagree with, um, and yes. and that is the rhetorical device of all politicians, right? Like we can, you know, we we kind of, yeah. I don't know. I think this film is maybe more. Like as I'm talking about it now, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to kind of convey this as like a fully f- formed idea that I had coming into this. Like this, I'm kind of working out in the mix. That uh, this film is actually kind of could be read quite clearly and quite articulately um, mm. as being a film about po- politicians. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think, I think maybe. And I don't necessarily think, and I want to ask you one more question before we before we start to get around up after this. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> necessarily think I thought this immediately coming away from it that this this is okay. No, actually, I do think this is a work, the work of a genius. But I didn't necessarily think that this was a work of genius until I start to think about all of its resonances <laughs> right now. I think perhaps like this is like a profound work that has kind of. And, and you know it's it's kind of it's a shame that it's obviously not going to speak to many people and partly it's is to blame you know it's like you know it's an incredibly kind of stagey serious and it is in many ways slow so the question i was going to ask ask you uh before we get on to sort of the wrapping it up because maybe i've kind of already shown my hand in terms of like you know what i think of this film <laughs> is were you ever bored for this two a hundred and two, sorry, I was gonna say two hundred and ninety-six minutes, dialogue heavy, kind of we're we're very closely attached to a pretty unlikable dude 
did you did you find that the the duration because you know you, we're talking about substance but we're like this this podcast is also about form as well um i have a very simple answer and that is no because it is relentless i think it's quite exciting in places as well exactly it's it's quite high octane the um uh Chaylan has always been a very careful sound mixer essentially um and in addition to shooting and writing directing producing uh casting his parents in um his original films he also did the sound of mm. them as well and he's always been very careful about that and again one of the things that this film does that is quite new um to him as a practitioner is its use of like overlapping dialogue as the main sonic motif mm. and he uses it like it gets quite uh stressful you can tell there have been a lot of rehearsals with the actors and a lot of um you know takes to try and get the uh the dialogue rhythms just so mm. and yeah it is not merely that they're really good at bouncing off one another it's that they are also really good at talking over one another and creating this kind of sense of cacophony stress um you know my god please just listen to each other um, so it is exciting. Uh, were you ever bored? Um, I don't think so. I think once I found its rhythm, and I, and I, you know, I, I also said at the outset, like it's been a while since I've watched a Chernab film, um, and I haven't seen The Wild Pear Tree, which I am interested to go to after this because it's this other one that is like, you know, over three hours. I think it might it yeah. might even be longer. So one thing for me coming into this film was thinking about it as like you know, and and, and okay say what you will about awards, but like can I think works differently to the Oscars slightly. I'm not saying that they don't like sometimes give career awards and uh, winter sleep kind of felt like, you know, he'd been building up to it and, you know, we're going to give him that we're going to give him the top prize. And part of me was watching it thinking, well, I don't have that same sort of like immediate sort of like um, interest that I did in like Anatolia, which, you know, as I said earlier, like right at the beginning, like has the kind of the, the more generic framework. And I don't mean generic, like meaning simplistic. I mean, generic is in terms of genre. Um, yes. um, yeah. and you know, the more this film sat with me, the more I actually think that, you know, I don't want to just say because it won the Palme d'Or, it's his magnum opus, but I do think that there is something within this film that, endures in a way that i haven't seen in his other works and, and actually may speak to future generations in like this kind of oh, no that, that that's kind of pontificating but like um i don't know how do you feel about this like do you like do you because because like the pandor gives like this magnum opus kind of gravitas do you think how do you think this fits within his oeuvre yeah, don't know why I said that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I agree with you that talking through Winter Sleep has definitely given me a much greater kind of um, appreciation of it. But I would be the person who assigns more, um, well, like preference certainly because it is a personal thing. Uh, but you know, greatness in general, I guess, to to his earlier films. Um, there's a sense okay. in which, like, I, I think his, his earlier films play more with the medium uh, rather than with, like, morality, uh, consciousness, uh, it, like, you know, social consciousness. These, these big questions, basically, that we've been discussing in relation to this film. 
these are these are kind of bigger almost. The the morality of earlier Chelon, on the other hand, kind of sits within like more uh, what the existence of film and filming um, has kind of brought to consciousness. Uh, and that and that's different. So how film has has affected you know the way we see things, um, and this is where we definitely start getting into like you know um, uh, 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 like oh good movie making is in the eye of the beholder um, sort of territory, um, but, which is fine. But it's just for me there is something so deeply fascinating, uh, and this goes back to the Ackerman comparison I made at the beginning. Um, something so fascinating about the first three Chelan films, which are always like loosely grouped together as this quote, uh, uh, small town uh, trilogy. Mm. Um, particularly the, 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 the second film, Clouds of May, um, has this real meta filmmaking thing going on where the, uh, 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 the, the, the Muzafir Uzdemir character, um, who's playing kind of the usual stand-in um, or archetype, I suppose, for, for Chelan himself sort of thing. Um, has come back to Indonesia to make this film. Uh, that's uh, the, uh, so. There's no no kind of concept behind this film is ever made clear within the context of the mm. of the diegesis. You just kind of get the sense that he's trying to make this film about like you know rural people, which I say with kind of scare quotes, and which the movie Clouds of May kind of says in scare quotes. We're not necessarily supposed to root for the filmmaker character and whatever his project is. Um, there's something kind of patronizing about him and his relationship to the rural um, uh, area from which yeah. he's escaped and now returns to exploit for his uh filmmaking anyway um but if you've seen Chelan's debut as well then you do come to realize in clouds of may that the film the Izdemir character is making in this is in fact um verbatim scenes from that film which sounds really neat and clever and precious but the thing is there's something very self-critical and specific and personal uh, about it and i find it so odd and uh, real and just you know beautiful um and you know importantly so so he uses the cinematic image like not just you know not not like every fucking every frame of painting isn't this shot like nicely but like the actual terms the idea of the cinematic image what is being encoded when you start to capture people existing on screen capturing their souls these moments in time yeah. and thought and again, that all comes back to like it's his real ca- uh, parents playing the character's parents. Um, uh, Mehmet Evan Turbrook is again the real cousin playing the character's cousin. All of this kind of. Um, and there's something to the way Chilan uses these clever things, the way he uses meta cinematic ideas and imageries and these playful, skewiff versions of um, sort of almost life writing that just says something so deep and immediate and direct. And personal, and there's something so perfect and punky about it. Um, so, all of that to say about how clever Chelan is, that stuff appeals to me. So that's a personal thing. But by by the time you get to Winter Sleep, uh, as you say, he's done a lot of developing. Um, he's become like this master filmmaker, like this uh, can anointed uh, international auteur. Um, and as much as I do agree that this is uh, Winter Sleep does represent a, a perfecting um, of a particular approach to cinema, um, and admittedly it's even more interesting than that because it's actually not really a perfecting like he's been developing this style over years. It's actually a reversal of his established approach to cinema. Um, and so he finds something really intriguing by doing that. Um, 
that's incredible. Um, I mean, this is this is fucking worth it. You know, it's five stars. It's like it's it's a great film. It deserves um, uh, all of its praise. Um, but yeah, for me, that kind of like, what do you prefer in cinema? What do you respond to? And for me, the answer to that is it's when he's starting out in the late nineties. Personally, it's interesting actually that you mentioned the sort of the meta cinematic nature of it because I don't know if I've mentioned this yet on on the recording or if it was when we were talking about it beforehand that um, Abbas Kirstami sort of came to mind um, yes. whilst I was watching this yeah. film, who has this kind of very meta cinematic style, especially in something like Taste of Cherry, which you know, you know, and you know, close up, and um, also a filmmaker who has been somewhat sort of situated adjacent to slow cinema yeah. as kind of like a, as a, as a mode. Um, and I thought there's this kind of like something about like the tragic humanism of both his films and, um, and also of this film in particular by Chelan, but, but, but I think, you know, it, it certainly recurs in my memory of the earlier films of his that I've seen. Um, so yeah, I suppose like, I kind of I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but we might as well ask it anyway because it is it is our uh, our style. <laughs> uh, went to sleep. Nori Bilga Chelan, was it fucking worth it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> back at you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is <laughs> you know this is a profound film. I think about the responsibility of wealth, about kind of the. Uh, the burden of kind of like, I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's about the responsibility of wealth, but it's also about the need to reflect and not even the, the burden of self-justification, but the kind of the potential harm that self-justification can bring, not just to you and how other people see you and how other people respond to you and how other people like you, but to everything around you. Like, you know, and, and I think actually, yeah, it's about, it is about the burden of wealth, but it's also about the fact that if you don't do anything with that wealth, then you are confined to be an awful landlord. Um, and, and, you know, and lording over land is not a pretty position to be in. Like, if... Well, I mean, I suppose it is if the only thing you use to measure it is wealth. But, like, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a a profoundly intelligent film by a director working at the height of his powers. I can see why it won the Palm d'Or. I think it might endure to go down as his masterpiece. Um, Though whatever that means we're talking about a filmmaker who doesn't really dabble in mediocrity <laughs> unlike his characters yeah yeah, um, right. <laughs> yeah it's a sort of it's what it's the sort of film that is made by a filmmaker who does know that he's great because you could not risk making this film if you were mediocre hmm. you wouldn't but, conceive of this of making this film if you were mediocre yeah yeah but yeah, I think that yeah, I think this is a is a five star film. I think it's uh, mm. absolutely. Um, I think actually, it's probably of the ones we've watched so far, maybe the one that would stay will stay with me the longest out of the new watches. Because um, okay. I, you know, things like America and Once Upon a Time in America is a film that's kind of followed me throughout my adulthood because I've watched it a lot. Um, but yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a fantastic it's a fantastic film um as i say like i think i think maybe 
once we've got some distance between them, we should consider the wild pear tree as like a follow-up yeah, episode. Yeah, I'd like to re- uh, watch that for the first time. Because it, 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 fits, it fits the bill. Um, yeah. At a whopping... <laughs> oh, no, a less whopping. 188. Oh. It's actually shorter. Oh, I thought it was like... Okay, fine. Um, well, that's easier yeah. um, for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would also say quickly in terms of the, like, is it uh, worth it um, for when mm. to sleep? Um, this is in many ways an exemplary use of digital camera work. Um, it's um, So Chaylar made the jump from 35mm to shooting exclusively digitally with his fourth film, uh, Climates, um, which was made in 2006, or at least released in 2006. Um, and in that film, you, you get the sense that you have... Um, uh, in actually a lot of cinema of that time. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you know, if if you're a film viewer of our age, then you live through the 2000s boom in art house filmmakers going digital and the kind of like, you know, 720, 1080, you know, sub-HD digital video look that kind of came with uh, a lot of those. Um, it, like, I'm talking really indie um, and international indie cinema, um, obviously. Um, in climates, it, you know, that look does work well because it's a very immediate, very direct narrative and that, that does, um, you know, the, the, it, the form matches the function, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, in Three Monkeys, he's kind of working through it a bit more. He does a lot of really stylized colour grading, um, which, you know, is also very of its time. <laughs> Um, and it's more or less effective, like literally depending on the scene in that film, I think. Um, pretty, um, you know, up and down. Um, but with, uh, so you get to Anatolia and then you get to this and he's now mm. shooting on like this uh, uh, Cine Alta uh, uh, Sony camera. I think it's uh, an F- F60 mm. or, or one of those ones um, where it's supposed to kind of emulate a lot of the functionality of a normal 35mm camera in terms literally of how uh, you operate it, you know, lens it, um, and you feel a, you really feel a particular richness with that. I think a scale to the images themselves, um, and I think it's an example of like, mm. um, you know, in, in a world that is like moving or has already moved beyond celluloid and into digital, um, this is how one can do it. I think in a way that actually like bears some of the texture of celluloid shooting. Um, and I think like like just for that alone, like this is really worthwhile bit of, uh, of of filmmaking yeah yeah which also actually brings back interesting comparisons to be made with kurostami mm, um of course for his yeah for his kind of indebtedness to uh like the changing technology of film yeah um so it's fucking worth it. Anyway. We've done that. We um, know it's worth it. It is worth it. Yeah, yeah. Um, next time we're we're sticking with the schedule, right? We're sticking with the schedule. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah the next episode that we're going to do, if you want to listen, uh, watch along with our podcasting, um, is going to be Nicholas Winding Refn's "Too Old to Die Young," released in twenty nineteen. Don't worry, you heard that right. It is going to be "Too Old to Die Young," which is indeed a limited series for Amazon Prime. It may or may not also be a long film cut down. Discussion will certainly be had. Mm. Um, either way, the total runtime of this work, however you classify it, is 754 minutes or 12 hours and 34 minutes. It is right there on Amazon Prime if you're a subscriber. If not, pirate it. Refn himself would probably support that. 
to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. He's a dude. I mean, we, uh-huh. we, we talked a little bit off air earlier about the inclusion of Twin Peaks to return on the extended BFI top films list. It was somewhere in the hundreds. And I think if you can qualify that as a single film, which is contentious, but nevertheless possible, then Too Old to Die Young is kind of doing similar things. And actually, it invites nice conversations about what distinguishes television from film at this point in time. Um, I mean, obviously, if you always read television as being long film, then that would be somewhat problematic. But, you know, these are kind of (laughs) directors directed by a single filmmaker across a number of episodes. It's something that's been kind of conceived holistically rather than episodically to be continued beyond them. Um, And there are cases to be made, I think. And, you know, when you're watching Amazon Prime, back-to-back episodes on your iPad. Who who, who really wants to call it television anyway? Well, thank you very much for listening once again to So Long Suckers. Um, Again, if you are just listening to this on one of the podcasting apps, then please be aware that we do have an entire blog dedicated to this pursuit of long films. Um, Solongsuckers.substack.com. Please do go there. Please sign up. Please send it to your friends. Please do all of the things that you can yeah. do to get the word of long films out there. If you are listening on a podcasting app, do give us a five-star rating. Anything less would be insane, obviously. Um, do give us a little review if you can, and again... Look at all this work. Well, look at all this work we're doing. Yeah, exactly. Look at all this fucking research and work we put into this. These these three to nine-hour films. <laughs> um uh, yeah, so um, personally, I open Callum Baker. You can find me on Twitter at Callum BKR. That is spelled C A L U M B K R. You can find me on Instagram at the same place. And Eddie Falvey, who have you been? I am Eddie Falvey. You can find me on Twitter at Eddie Falvey, although I only sporadically tweet, to be honest. Um, I don't. And even then, you know, the, the things you tweet are all like really racist and stuff anyway. Oh, please don't, please don't say that. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I'm obviously joking. I'm big person. Right. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Eddie Falvey on Twitter. Um, you can find my scholarship if you search online. Got books and articles and whatnot. Used to run a blog. Don't really <laughs> anymore. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. So long, suckers. We're not going to pay.